0: So, uh, reminder of where we've been, we have our timeline here, let's see, and I'm going to be impressed if you can do this without looking, I've been, I've been practicing, see, we're up to the law, these are our motions to help us remember this story, you ready? So we got God, creation, fall, promise, flood, tower, patriarchs, exodus, and law was what we had last week. There's our fleshly little stone tablets. And we've got it, and we're rolling. Now, I had a question here at the outset. Anyone else in here have a tough time making up their minds? Now, if you're, you're like, I'm not sure, then <laughs> <laughs> you've proved your point. Uh, I, I'm terrible with changing my mind. I'll stand in the deodorant aisle and haggle over prices for half an hour right i'm looking like, well this one's 28.3 cents per unit but this one smells like the ocean right and it's like so how do we weigh these things out or you know jerry seinfeld once joked he said when you're looking at aspirin it's like well this one's fast acting and this one's long lasting so do i want to feel better now or later you know and you're trying to make these decisions and and you and i we are always changing our mind but god is holy he's different than us and he never changes he never changes the plan. He never has to go, well, that one didn't work, so we gotta alternate courses over this way. He always stays the same. Now, since the beginning of his story, what we've been looking at is that man is sinful. This is nothing new. If you've been growing up in church, man has sinned. I and mean, God says the only way to come to me is is not by anything you can do, but it's by faith in, in me and that I am sending a deliverer to bring you back to myself. And we've seen this in this story over and over again, that God says we're saved by faith in him. We saw this, God showed this at the beginning of the story in Adam and Eve, when he rejected their fig leaf covering and provided a covering for them. And what did he do? He killed animals in their place, used that skin to cover up their nakedness, saying, you can't cover up your own sin. It's got to be me that covers you. And then he said this to to Cain and Abel. This looks like the the Brady Bunch edition here. Um, But we've got Cain and Abel, and they come, and he says that Abel's gift is is accepted, and, and Cain's is rejected. What's the difference? Hebrews 11 tells us that Abel came by faith, believing God could save him, and Cain didn't. He came his own way. He was saved by faith, and we move on. Noah's ark. We saw that it was the first time in the Bible that the word grace was used. It said Noah found favor with God. That word there is grace. He did not accept Noah because you said you're a good enough dude. Okay, you've been you've been done enough things that please me. He says, No, I'm giving you, I'm accepting you because you believe that I'm going to provide a way for you to be saved. And then he tells Noah how to build the ark. And then of course Abraham. We see in Genesis 15, it says Abraham believed God. He placed his faith in God, not in himself. And God counted it to him, credited it to his account as righteousness. He saw Abraham as righteous, not because of anything good Abraham had done, but because he believed in God and that God would save him. And over and over again, we see this principle. You're a sinner. Trust that I will save you. But now all of a sudden, God throws the law on Israel. And is he all of a sudden changing his mind? Is God pulling a deodorant aisle on us here? And he's going, you know, I changed my mind. I do want you to be good enough. The old way, this whole faith business wasn't working. Boom, 613 commandments, deal with it. Good luck. That's not what's happening here. And Galatians 3 tells us that's not what's happening here. You look at... Uh, Galatians 3, verse 15. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant, a human uh, promise that has been duly established, so it is in this case. So he says, once a promise is established, you can't then put out another promise that, that nullifies the first promise. And he says the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, and I love this, scripture doesn't say and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. Here, Paul shows us this promise of of his seed. It wasn't just, hey, you're going to have a bunch of family members, the, the nation of Israel, the promise centered around the one seed, singular, Jesus. This is the promise he made. Remember, we said this is an unconditional covenant, not based on anything Abraham could do. So, What I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later, after what? After he made the promise with Abraham. 430 years go by, they're enslaved to Egypt, they come out, and now he gives them this law. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. So he doesn't say, Abraham, I'm going to send Jesus to save the world no matter what, and then 430 years later say, just kidding, actually you got to do a bunch of things if you want to get saved. It says the law does not nullify the promise that I already made to Abraham, so then we have to ask the question, why give the law? And we looked at this last week, and we saw there's three overarching reasons. If you remember, we said the first one is to show the holiness of God, his incredibly high standard, the the standard of perfection. It shows, number two, the sinfulness of man, that none of us can achieve that standard, which then leads us to... Point number three, that he shows us the grace of God, that you can't come by your own ability to meet that standard, and it points us to Jesus, the one who kept that standard for us. And so what we want to look at this week is is kind of unpacking that. You go back to Galatians 3, and he answers the question here. He says, why then was the law given? If it wasn't given for salvation, why did he give it? It was given alongside the promise, alongside the promise, to show people their sins The law was designed to last only until the coming of the child was promised. He says it was like a guardian that was there to keep them until Jesus came. So what was in that time period between the giving of the law and Jesus coming, what was the law doing? There's a few things I want to point out this morning. The first thing it was to do was to distinguish God used the law to show Israel was set apart, made holy, which is what set apart means, to be distinguished from the rest of of the nations around them. They are to be this bright light in a dark world. And so he gives them all these rules, not just do not kill and do not steal, but he gives them all these rules about what they can and cannot eat. Um, he says what you can and cannot wear. If you look at your tag right now on the back of your shirt, uh, don't do it right now, please. But uh, as you're looking, uh, if it, he says you can't have mixed fabrics. You can't wear mixed fabrics. So if your shirt right now uh, does not say 100% cotton or if it says, you know, 50% this and that, then you're living in sin. I'm here to tell you this morning. OK, God bless you. you. Um, <laughs> And so he's given them all these rules to say, you're going to look different than the rest of the the nations, and they're going to see you. They're going to notice that you're my people, distinguished from the rest of the people on earth. The second thing was to deter. Now listen, we know that the, the, the sin problem could not be fixed by the law, but the law was designed to restrain israel's sin to some degree if you and i are driving down the highway to anchorage i guess up the highway to anchorage and you see the speed limit sign that says 65 miles an hour let's be honest who here only goes 65 or under that's what i thought okay i'm going 70 71 because i know if the cop passes me he's not going to pull me over now am i obeying the letter of the law i'm not but we're very much, there's a lot fewer of us in here that are going to drive 95 or 100, except for you heathens. I don't want to point, look at anybody in particular, Pastor Chuck, no. Um, <laughs> so, so we're, but why, Why it restrains us. How does it restrain us? Well, we know if we're driving 100 miles an hour down the road, we're going to get pulled over and get slammed with a fine, maybe even looking at some big prison time. Um, Israel was certainly going to keep sinning, but what the law did was it helped keep a lid on it. If if you look at what Martin Luther said, he said, as a wild beast is tied to keep it from running amok, so the law bridles mad and furious man to keep him from running wild. So no, this would not save them from their sin problem, but it would help deter them from getting out of control with their sin because they go, man, if I steal my neighbor's donkey, the law says I am to get stoned. And that makes them think twice. It deters them from stealing their neighbor's donkey. And the third reason, and I think this is the main purpose that we'll camp on today, is it's to diagnose. The, the law diagnosed the heart of the people of Israel. It showed them, it revealed to them how deep their sin went and how much they needed someone outside of themselves to save them. And so I want you to come with me to the courtroom. We're going to go to Romans 3 today. It's going to be a little bit of a, of a detour in a sense. We've got to figure out this law thing. So we're, we're not really advancing the story today, but we've got to look at what this law meant for Israel, and then from that, what does the law mean for us? Because if we don't get this, we're going to read the rest of the Old Testament incorrectly. So in Romans 3, it says the law does three things, and the first thing it does is it shuts our mouths. Um, It says in verse 19 of Romans 3, Now we know whatever the law says, it speaks to those that are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So what it says here, Paul is saying, it silences the mouths of those who think they're good enough. And it says here, notice he says, to those who are under the law. Well, who is under the law? We said this last week. It's Israel who's under the law of Moses. The law, and we'll get to this down the road maybe when we study Romans. The law can mean different things depending on the context. But here he's talking about the Mosaic law, those 613 commands we saw last week. The Gentiles, those who are not Jews, were never under the Jewish law. Were never under the law of Moses. And just like we said last week, it's all about context. Who said it and who are they saying it to and I use the illustration when my sister-in-law Ashley tells my nephew two-year-old Ray if you go poo-poo on the potty I will give you candy I can't take that promise and apply it to myself or after I flush I will be sorely disappointed right so, so who said it, and who was it said to? God used Israel, he spoke to Israel, this is a specific covenant with the people of Israel. But what Romans 3 says, and this is where we come in, he says, he, he gave it to those under the law, so that every mouth will be stopped, and the whole world will be held accountable. So yes, the law was given to Israel, but it was used to the effect that it would stop every mouth And silence us all and show that we're all accountable to God, including you and I. See, we may never have been under those specific 613 commands, but you and I, Jew and Gentile alike, all have the exact same sin problem. We were born into this world, sinners, unable to achieve the level of perfection that would be necessary to be like God and have a relationship with him. And so as the rest of the world watches Israel fail to keep the law, we see that we couldn't keep it either, and we're silenced. But every once in a while, you have that arrogant punk who comes walking into the courtroom and says, you know, a pretty good guy. Like, I've I'm better than Hitler, right? I'm certainly better than my neighbor. Have you seen my neighbor? Are you kidding me? And they walk up to God and you know, you know what? I think I've done a pretty good job. And, and what the Bible says is that there's grace to the humble and law to the proud. So what God does is he takes the law and he goes, you want to play that game? Let's play that game. Let's see how you measure up to my standards. Let's grab my standards, right? whips them out, they go out the door, let's let's start working through these, and you may have heard the, you know, Ray Comfort, kind of the way of the master series, they walk through the law, he goes, okay, arrogant punk, have you ever told a lie, have you ever lied, well, yeah, I've told some lies, well, what does that make you, what's, what do you call someone who lies, you guys got it, did you read that, (laughs) then he goes, oh, have you ever stolen anything, well, yeah, I've stole, I've stole some things, well, what does that make you?" you, that's right, Makes you a thief. Well, have you ever have you ever committed adultery? No, no, I've never done anything bad like that. Well, Jesus comes in the New Testament and says, if you look at somebody with lust in your heart, it's the same thing in God's eyes as adultery. Well, even the arrogant punk has done that. He says, what does that make you? Makes you an adulterer. Have you ever murdered someone? Of course not. Well, Jesus said, if you look at someone with hate in your heart, it's the same thing as murder in God's eyes. So if you ever looked at somebody with hate, ever looked at somebody with not the ultimate form of love, loving them as yourself, well, of course I've done that. Well, what does that make you? In God's courtroom, it makes you a murderer. Have you ever taken his name in vain? Have you ever used God's names for your own end? Have you ever worshipped him and claimed that you're worshipping, but have no relationship with him? If you've done that, then you're a blasphemer. Have you ever worshipped anything other than God? Have you ever treasured something in your life more than God? And and even this arrogant dude has got to admit, I I do that every day. Well, that makes you an idolater according to the law. So by your own admission, you're a lying, thieving, murderous, adulterous, idolatrous, blasphemer at heart. And dude, we're only through six of the commands. We got 613. God says, if you want to play that game, If you want to come to me on your own efforts? You're going to find yourself on the wrong end of a life sentence. And then to take it even a step farther, James says you break one, you broke them all. James 2, for the person who keeps all the laws except one is as guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. So we just saw that guy break six of them. He goes, even if you think you kept 612, but you break one, you're just as guilty in my sight as if you had broken them all. It's like when you say to your kid, one more word out of you. It doesn't matter what word they say. Any word, and, and they're busted, right? And you think about climbing this rope to God, and all of these knots are a law. He says, if you cut that, on any of those knots anywhere along the rope, it doesn't matter where it is, how close up the or far down, the, it, it says wherever you cut it, the, the rope is broken. You see, what we're called to is God's perfection. You know what perfection means? It means perfect, right? That's my analysis. So, so what he's saying is, if if you If you break any one law, you've fallen short of God's standard of perfection. And if our level of perfection doesn't equal his, then we can't have a relationship with him. But the first thing the law does is it shuts our mouths. The arrogant punk is silenced because no one can honestly claim they've measured up to that standard. Number two, it shows that we're guilty. It shows that each of us are lawbreakers. Verse 20, for the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Just a big fancy word that means made right in God's sight, acceptable to him, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So he says, here's what the law does. It makes us know how sinful we are. It shows the specific way that we've broken the law. The law is like an x-ray. Okay, now in eighth grade, I've, I've talked about this before, I jumped off a bluff and I jacked up my back. Don't ask any other questions. Just, let's just keep moving. Started walking like I had a stick strate- strategically located in an undisclosed location. Um, and all through high school, we knew how bad it was. And if it wasn't for the local rolfer, I wouldn't have been able to stand upright, let alone be able to play basketball. I knew there was a problem. But I had no idea how deep the problem went until I went to the doctor and got an x-ray. Now, this isn't my actual x-ray. This is just Google images. Um, The doctor in Anchorage, what he told me, he said, you have avascular necrosis. And what that means is there's no blood flowing to your hips. And within five years, you will not be walking if you don't get this surgery. Now, the the x-ray was essential because it showed me how deep the problem was. And that I needed surgery. See... The X-ray showed I had a problem, but an X-ray is powerless to f- to actually heal me. Right? I could take a million X-rays, and it's not going to fix the problem. The, the, the X-ray simply diagnosed that I had something wrong; it couldn't make that wrong thing right. In the same way, the law is essential because it shows how deep the problem is. But the law is the X-ray; it's not the surgery. John Stott, he said it this way, the function of the law was not to bestow salvation, it was not to save us, it was not to give us salvation, but to convince men of their need of it. He says the law shows you how much you need salvation, it can't give you salvation. John Calvin said it in a deeper way, God awakens us through the law. He leads us to acknowledge our desperate condition. It was added in order that we might realize that God is right to condemn us all. We're all guilty and to give our mind no rest from those anxious and tortuous thoughts in order that our despair might lead us to find hope in his promise. He says the law is there, It's, it's push it on you like a weight to show you how deep the problem goes how how, how how hopeless the situation is to lead us to the promise that God has given us that he has made a way for us another way to look at it is the law is like a mirror for a dirty face now I'll take an example here I always like picking on George just making sure he's awake oh. <laughs> he's awake that's good that's all you know is a good sermon when George stays awake for the majority of it. Now, this is purely hypothetical, but let's say that George has a dirty face, okay? I I can tell that he's already taken his weekly shower, so that's good. Uh, We're we're on the right path. Now, let's say that George is alone, which actually kind of looks like that is the case this morning. Let's say Francie's out of town, and there's... Don't ruin my illustration, George. Just... Okay, all right. So, George... Francie's out of town and George can't tell if his face is dirty or not. Now, I could come up to George and say, George, you got a dirty face. And he can come back at me, well, you got an ugly face. <laughs> Nothing, <laughs> nothing's going to fix that, right? I mean, he can, and he can, he can deny it until his dirty face turns blue. But the fact of the matter is, George has got a dirty face. Now, he might not believe this. But instead of fighting George on the issue, what can I do? Just hold up a mirror. George, you dirty, right? You're a dirty man. And I can show him in that mirror, and he can look at that. Now, George can clearly see the Spaghetti-O smudges all over his face, because that's what George eats when Francie's out of town. (laughs) That's all he's capable of doing. So, George's dirty mouth is silenced. He knows now, beyond a shadow of a doubt, he's seen it clearly, he has that dirty face. Now, similarly, you and I, we have a dirty heart. But until the mirror of the law is shown to us, We oftentimes cannot see clearly what we are. Now, the law was not a list of rules that were given to make us right with God. Listen, that was never the purpose of the law. That would be like George taking my mirror and trying to rub the SpaghettiO stains off of his face with the mirror. The mirror is designed to reflect, to show how deep the problem is. It's not the mirror's job to clean you, it's to show you how dirty you are. It's like a thermometer. The thermometer tells us what the temperature is. It does not change the temperature. That's the job of the thermostat. Now, at this point, you might think, man, the law really stinks. Like, I'm out on this law thing. And I want to emphasize here, the problem is not the law okay? The law is perfect. David in the Psalms, he says, my soul delights in the law. In fact, the longest Psalm, Psalm 119, is him just going on and on about the law. Romans 7 says the same thing. Paul says, well, but am I suggesting the law is sinful? Of course not. It's, the problem is not with the law. He goes, the law itself is holy, and its commands are holy and right and good. It's like, you know, you come up to the, the girl, and it's time to break up, and you say, baby, it's not you, it's me. You know, you, you've tried that line before. And you, and you come up to the law and you go, girl, like the law, it's not you, it's me. The, the problem is not the law, the problem is my heart. You see, there's an equation. The law plus flesh equals sin. Flesh meaning our sinful nature. So when you take the law and you add my sinful nature, what's going to result is sin each and every time. Paul explains this. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said you must not covet. Remember, that's one of the Ten Commandments. But sin used this command to arouse all kinds of covetous desires within me. We said to covet is to desire something that doesn't belong to you. So when the law says don't desire something that doesn't belong to you, do you know what our sinful flesh does with that law? It actually makes us want to desire something that doesn't belong to us. You look at this illustration. This guy says, suddenly I have an urge to juggle machetes. Where'd that come from? Where did he, that did not just come into his head. If I come up to you and I go, dude, whatever you do, do not think about donuts. Don't do it. Do not think about those mooses loose, larger than life, gooey, delicious donuts. Stop it, George. Now we got the dirty face. We got to the bottom of it. We figured it out. Um, so, I, or, you know, and you do that sometimes. You walk by a sign that says, fresh paint, don't touch. You would have never in a million years thought about touching that wall. But as soon as you see that sign, what does your rebellious little finger want to do, right? I'm driving down the road and you see no stopping here. I was trying to make record time to Anchorage. But now I see that sign, I'm going to stick it to the man, right? I mean, that's what's in our sinful hearts. And so he says here with the law... Yeah, totally off track. <laughs> because of our sinful nature, the law is absolutely powerless to save us. In fact, all it does when you add the law with our sinful nature is it makes the sin abound even more. And Timothy, Paul says, we know the law is good when used correctly. When we, try, when we use the law to show the proud how deep the problem is, it can be used for good. But when we try to keep the law in order to please God, in order to save ourselves, it's a wreck. And then... We want to look at things, and this is the most important thing, is God's point of view. don't you imagine for a second, you move into a new house, okay, it's got fresh paint, don't touch it, <laughs> it's got new furniture, new appliances, the whole thing, and now this is the baby's room, okay, I'm sure this is what everybody in here, your baby's room has looked like, especially after the baby's been in there for a while, uh, it's just immaculate, and you, and, and you, when you, when you're going into the house, and you're checking things out, in the corner of the child's bedroom, there's this rat, okay, and I'm not just talking any rat, I'm talking a rat on steroids. You put a, a, a saddle on that puppy and you're joining the rodeo, okay? And this thing is stinky and to boot it is, it is infested with maggots, okay? Anybody here ready for lunch now? Um, so you see this rat and what do you say to this rat? This rat has got to go. There is no debate in the, in the, in the issue. This rat cannot live in my child's clean bedroom. And this is... How God views us as sinners. Listen, there's a lot of hard choices in our lives. Which deodorant to put on? One of them is not whether or not the rat should stay or go. And for God, he says, you cannot live in my house. You cannot have a relationship with me unless you are as holy as I am. You've got to go. And to be clear, it's how he views the sin of the sinner. He loves us, but he cannot have the sin. And so the rat says, okay, okay, I get it. I'm gross. I understand that. But right here and he sprays some perfume on him okay some oil day rat puts a rat suit on rat tie starts attending rat church helping old lady rats across the street okay rats really cleaned up his act right but you hold up a mirror and you go dude you're still a rat you're still a maggot infested stinky disgusting rat And you got to go. You see, keeping the Ten Commandments can't change the fact that we're still maggot-infested sinners. Because the problem is not what we do. The problem is who we are. We need to change. Not just our outward acts, but it's us. We are the problem. And so so listen, saying I'm not going to lie anymore, saying I'm going to go to church more often, is just spraying perfume on the rat. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were, became separated from God and every single one of us that are born from them are born separated from God, disconnected from our life source, born sinners, and as sins, as surely as the apple tree will produce apples, the sinner produces sin, and that's all we can do. And God holds up the, the mirror and he says, no matter what you do, you're still a stinky sinner. Anybody getting the warm fuzzies yet for this morning? Third and final point, and this is the good one. The courtroom shows we need Jesus. It shows we need Jesus. See, the law diagnoses, it shows that you and I are helpless sinners. It says it leaves every mouth closed. It silences us all, and that leaves us with two options. Okay, two options for us. The first one is to try harder. Now, maybe there's some in this room this morning that we, we and I, I've gone down this road. And you just kind of turn up the law-keeping knob. I'm not going to lie anymore. That's the last time I'm going to look at pornography. It's all going to stop. From here on out, I'm worshiping God alone. And we make these promises to God, and we come to Him. and say, we're going to try harder to keep these commands in order to please you. I'm going to do it this time. But because we're sinners, and you add that flesh to the law, the only thing that happens is there's more sin. And it leads us down one of two paths. And and maybe you've gone down both of these. Maybe you've gone down one. The first one is despair. Because when we try harder, the only thing that's going to happen is we're going to fail And we come to the end of ourselves, and there's nothing but shame, there's nothing but guilt, and hopelessness. And maybe somebody in this room is feeling that this morning. And the other option is this, it's delusion. And a lot of us, I've definitely gone down this path, where we start pretending that we are impressing God. We make up our own little list of rules that we think we can keep. And even though what we do is we hide all the things that are really going on in our hearts, paint the smile on our faces, pretend like everything's fine, and judge everybody else who's not keeping our little list of standards... This is the Pharisee track. This is hypocrisy, and it's living in delusion, pretending as though we are okay when we are far from it. So the first option is to try harder, and those are the only two ends to that one. The other option is to stop trying and believe that Jesus is my perfect law keeper for me. And that's the ultimate purpose of the law to point us to Jesus. Paul said in Galatians 3, the law is a schoolmaster, which is really best interpreted as like a guardian to keep Israel until they got to Christ. It was to lead them to Jesus. So you go back to the courtroom. God showed you the standard. He showed me how far I fell short of it. And as he throws the gavel down and he says guilty, Jesus walks into the room. And he comes up to the judge, and he says, Judge, you know I've never broken one of the laws. I've lived a perfect life. I have perfect standing with the court. And what Jesus says is what I want to do is he comes over to me, puts his arms around me, he says, I want to take his record, put it on me, I'll take his penalty. Yeah, I know it's the death sentence. And I want to give Justin... I want to give him my perfect standing with the law. And I'm going, What in the world? And then he goes, Oh, and by the way, the judge, that's my dad. And the judge, he calls me over to the bench and he goes, Listen, you're no longer guilty. And you have Jesus' perfect record. And now, no longer call me judge, call me daddy. Call me Abba Father. And I'm going to make you my son, I'm going to make you my daughter. I'm going to give you the keys to the universe. You're going to rule and reign with me. And my mind, little mind is just blown. And he goes, "Anna, I'm going to put Jesus' life inside of you. And now it's going to be by faith. He is going to love me through you. He is going to love others through you. All those things that I've asked you to do, Jesus is going to be the one that does it inside of you. You don't have to keep the law. Jesus has kept it for you. Remember we said last week, Jesus said, if you love God and love others, you've kept the whole law. Jeremiah said, I'm going to write a new law, no longer on the stone tablets, but on your heart. And that's what he did when he gave us Jesus. There's this beautiful poem, and, and we'll end here. John Bunyan, he says, run, John, run, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. So the law asks us to do something that it cannot give us the power to do. It says be perfect, but it does not give us the ability to be perfect. For better news, the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. See, here's the difference between law and grace, between law and Jesus. The law says fly, so make yourself into an eagle. So you're stapling feathers onto your arms and painting your head white and, you know, trying to, you know, trying to imitate whatever. You know, trying to flap my wings, get a big old fan. Like, what am I going to, how am I going to fly? It says what to do. But it doesn't give me the power to do it. What Jesus does is he changes us from the inside out. We're actually a new creation in Christ. He makes us eagles. He gives us wings. He asks us to fly. But he's the one that gives us the ability inside of us to do it. That is the beauty of Jesus in the gospel. Let's praise him together. Father God, the law clearly shows us. It closes our mouths. There's not a person in this room, including myself, that has anything to say when we look at your righteous standard We're guilty, and we need Jesus. But Father, the good news is that he's come. I know there are different people in different places in this room today. And some of us, some of us need the law to be broken and to show. We we think we've been living a delusional lie that we think we're keeping the law, that we're keeping some set of substandards to impress you, and indeed we're not. And I pray for those of us, including my own heart, that are proud that you would break us by your grace. And in your gentleness, show us through the law. Show us, show us how deep our sin goes in order that we might come to Jesus. And Father, there are some in this room that are feeling the brokenness, that are hurting and just feeling the weight of their sin and their shame and their guilt. And Lord, I pray that they would find the same Jesus. When Satan tells us to despair and tells us of the guilt within, we don't put our eyes inside. We put them up on Jesus. And we see we have one that came and took our record and gave us his perfect standing with the law. God, for grace to trust you more this morning. For the proud, they would give the law to be broken. For the, gra- the humble, they would be given grace to lift their eyes up and see Jesus. That only the name of Jesus would be lifted up in this room. That we'd stop spraying the perfume. Stop putting on the three-piece rat suit. Take off the fig leaves and allow you to cover us with Jesus. It's in his beautiful name that we pray. Amen.